0: Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My next guest is Riz Ahmed. Riz has spent the last decade pursuing dual careers in acting and hip-hop. His work has been controversial, funny, subtle, the sort of stuff critics love, and it's found huge audiences despite all that. He moved from British independent movies like the suicide bomber comedy Four Lions to a big supporting part in Jake Gyllenhaal's Nightcrawler to full-fledged leading man roles. He recently picked up his first Oscar nomination for his role in Sound of Metal. That made him the first Muslim ever nominated for Best Actor, by the way. And also, like I said, he is an MC and he's very good at it. When I talked with him in 2016, he'd just released a new EP in collaboration with Heems of Das Racist. They called the project The Sweatshop Boys. He's kept rapping since then. Last year, he released The Long Goodbye, an LP. Here's a single from it: uh,
1: die, Cause all we ever do is die. They eat a bombers so with suicide with a dunamin. No, you wanna try? try. Woke up to a war. Why you wanna beef with your own like? I'll keep my beef with the poor. Why you bring it to me to a dunfight? You're yeah, the one that kill us soon
0: Riz Armand, welcome to Bullseye. It's great to have you on the
1: show. Thank you for having me, man. Um did you uh did you always MC? Um <clears throat> Yeah, I guess so. Not always. Um that would be really impressive. But um, but no, from like my teenage years, I guess it was just quite a natural way to express yourself in the environment I grew up um in London and in that period of time as well, when our kind of MC and culture really started kind of going upper gear um, with the explosion of jungle garage and, and and grime, um, and the kind of mainstreaming of underground UK hip hop as well and the kind of explosion of pirate radio stations. So I'd go and MC on local pirate radio. This is before internet radio, so it would be like somewhere in a council estate. Someone would have an antenna and illegal kind of, uh, um, you know, transmission equipment and, uh, and just be broadcasting, you know, radio. And you try and get a slot on there and play at local raves and stuff like that. So, yeah, it was just a kind of a natural thing it was something that was around a lot and it just felt exciting and as a young restless like hyperactive kid I was just not very naturally drawn to it
0: I was just in uh, London doing this show actually and uh, talking to a friend of a friend who was uh, she had been a, a commissioning person at the BBC comedy and she had been a culture studies major in school I was a culture studies major in school and we were chatting about our respective theses and um I did mine on identity strategies in hip hop. And uh she was like, oh, you know, mine was about the South Asian community in the UK and the way that uh hip hop identities kind of transformed immigrant identities in the eighties and nineties, especially. Um and I thought that was really interesting because there is not much of a parallel tradition in the United States. Yeah. Um, That's and-
1: fascinating. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I well, like I wonder to what extent like uh being what we call in the states ahead like being down with hip hop and hip hop culture um was an extension of of the culture of the people who looked like you that were around you.
1: Yeah, it's interesting because um you know, I think you're talking about the different kind of South Asian experience in the US and the UK. And I think there is quite a pronounced difference and it really comes down to class. I think uh, a lot of the kind of South Asian migration to the UK is the kind of blowback of empire post-World War II and accelerating the 60s and 70s as, uh, you know, Pakistan and Bangladesh destabilized and you had civil wars and stuff like that and, and cyclones and whatever. And, and so what you have is kind of a largely, although not completely, this is a generalization, a kind of working-class, uh, you know, wave of migrants to the UK. Um, a lot of people that came to work in factories, that kind of thing, people who kind of whose heritage maybe is from, from rural backgrounds. Whereas in the US, I think the stipulation imposed on South Asian migration was you have to have a kind of master's or a PhD or above, so you have a lot of people coming over, becoming doctors, engineers, professors. And so you've got a very different class profile. And... Um, I would say that the South Asian experience in the UK is more akin maybe to the, again, generalizing the, like the, the Hispanic or uh, Latino experience in the US, by which I mean our kind of socioeconomic position is probably comparable to the Latino experience here. And also the, the way in which we, both those groups, are kind of really entwined into the fabric of the societies that they live in. They really kind of built those countries, but still somehow remain strangely culturally uh, unassimilable or at least perceived as such Um, which again kind of weirdly comes back to class and how much people hold on to their you know that heritage um and so I think there there were quite different experiences. So the idea of like South Asian people, people like me, being like thugs or like you know being a credible uh, voice for like working class hip hop, maybe that's kind of alien to American listeners, but it's really not in the UK. You know, you, you know, you, there are South Asian neighborhoods you wouldn't want to get lost wandering around in the UK. It's it, it's it's just different in that sense. So given that we had that kind of class profile, the kind of you know, the music of people like Tupac or whatever, that resonated with us immediately, immediately. And and so actually it's a lyric that I've got on Half Mogul, Half Mowgli on the Sweatshop Boys album is, you know, growing up our only heroes were black rappers. So to me, Tupac was a true Paki. And that definitely did kind of mould and shape and influence what like the young South Asian, emerging South Asian identity was in the 90s. In the 80s, you had this generation that was like, okay, we came over here, we're not. You know we're we're being hosted. You know we're guests here, and our generation was like, well, we're born here. This is our country, and we need to find a kind of like language and 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 symbols to kind of. Um, express that, that, that kind of defiance in the face of those who said, we're not welcome and go back to where you came from. Is something often we heard, like, go back to where you came from, was like, well, this is where I come from. This is my home. And, and so that African-American experience, and, and, you know, as expressed through hip-hop, really, really resonated with us.
0: I, I want to play uh, one of your solo tracks um, from a tape that you put out this year uh, under your hip-hop name, which is uh, Riz MC. Uh, and it's called English Stand.
1: This is England. God save the queen, now she ain't made to me, but she keeps my paper green, plus we never the sea on this little island, where we all surviving, a lightness mixed with violence, this is England, the bridge we're living in. A kidgery simmering. Women in hijabs, syringe pop stars, and the promise of a Patel as a man you start. With the money you make and the man you are standing opposite, so we drink too hard. The banks rob you, and the news is half the truth. Wrapped up in boobs and arse. Pigs hit kids, so bricks hit windows. And the high street burns with broken dreams and herb. Only thing you can't find in Tesco is that and a sense of worth. So hide behind the or furs. Go online to find friends or perf. But click the wrong site for a free trial later, detention first.
0: You know, uh, the culture of England and especially London and especially those parts of England and London uh, that aren't white British people have generated like huge revolutions in global music in the last, whatever, 30 years. Yeah. Um, I think in film and television... There's a sort of compulsion to look backwards.
1: Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I, I think it actually goes beyond music. If you look at our literature, you know, whether it's Zadie Smith or, you know, I'm going to go ahead and claim Salman Rushdie, even though he lives in New York. I, I kind of feel like, or, or visual art, you know, I mean, people, artists like Tracy Emin talking about her kind of, you know, Cypriot background is central to her work, um, or Chris O'Feely. You know, across all kind of art forms, I think that kind of tapping into the goldmine of our multiculturalism has really served us well and allowed our work to to kind of travel and um, and speak globally by tapping into specific experiences that are kind of um, the that, that kind of represent the, the kind of hybrid global culture culture that we live there, in. Right? There
0: are these there are these pathways that <laughs> were you know established these these uh, bilateral relationships that were established by the colonial history of the UK. Absolutely,
1: yeah. And that's that 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 kind of that empire has shaped the modern world, you know. And so, yeah, I agree that there's there's definitely kind of been I think we punch above our weight culturally, the UK, um because of our multiculturalism and and how we kind of mind that. But you're right in film and TV and theatre that doesn't happen so much. I think it's for a few reasons. I definitely find it really frustrating, and I do think it's a real missed opportunity. Because I, I for one, refuse to believe that our best stories are behind us. I think they're happening right now, and they're ahead of us. So I I think um, there's lots of reasons, but ultimately, none of them are good enough to prevent us from tapping into what has been such uh, a strong point in other art forms. So uh, yeah, I think that's that's really you know an insightful observation. And like fundamentally, there's there's
0: just not a ton of parts for Pakistani guys in Downton Abbey
1: yeah 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 because that is that is one of my one of my lyrics I'm not happy until I'm in white face on Downton Abbey um Yeah, so I think it is. I think I mean, it's I'm tricky.
0: Not, I'm not going to play Riz. I kind of like Downton Abbey, but...
1: Yeah. Uh, well, you're growing a big old beard there. You're going to take snatch some of my roles <laughs> soon, too. So just calm down. No, um, I, I think you're right, man. But the thing with, with uh, even those period dramas and historical shows is even they kind of uh, are based on a kind of erasure of our true history. Yeah. Um, and and so I think we have this kind of slight denial about who we are as a, as, as a country and as a place in Europe and actually the reality. Um, and and I, it's, I think it's interesting that kind of at least the idea of America, although maybe social mobility is, you know, as messed up for, you know, lots of people of color over here. The, at least the idea of America is one that can absorb difference and, you know, the immigrant story.
0: We'll finish up with Riz Ahmed after the break. Did you know he was also in Rogue One, the Star Wars movie? We'll talk about what it's like to perform in a Star Wars movie when you have, well, grown up watching Star Wars movies. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. This message comes from NPR's sponsor, NerdWallet, a personal finance website and app that helps people make smarter money moves. Have new money goals this year? Whether you want to use credit card points to plan a family vacation abroad once it's safe or take advantage of low mortgage rates to refinance and save for your child's education, NerdWallet is the best place to shop financial products to help make your 2021 money goals happen. Discover and compare the smartest credit cards, mortgage lenders, and more at nerdwallet.com. Hey, everyone. It's I, John. Hodgman of the Judge John Hodgman podcast and I Elliot Kalin of the Flophouse podcast and we've made a whole new podcast a 12 episode special miniseries called I iPodius in which we recap discuss and explore the very famous 1976 BBC miniseries about ancient Rome called I Claudius we've got incredible guests such as Gillian Jacobs Paul F. Tompkins as well as star of I Claudius Sir Patrick Stewart and his son Non-Sir Daniel Stewart. Don't worry, Dan. You'll get there someday. iPodius is the name of the show. Every week from MaximumFun.org for only 12 weeks. Get them at MaximumFun.org or wherever you get your podcasts. On NPR's Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast, we talk about what we're watching, listening to, or just trying to figure out. Like what concert films you should watch if you miss live music. And great books to read, alone or in your book club. All of that in around 20 minutes every weekday. Listen now to the Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast from NPR. Welcome back to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is Riz Ahmed. He's an actor and rapper. You've seen him on screen in Nightcrawler, for Lions, Rogue One, A Star Wars Story. He recently made history as the first Muslim actor nominated for Best Actor at the Academy Awards. He earned it for his role in the recent drama Sound of Metal, which is out now on Amazon Prime. He and I talked in 2016. I want to play a clip from uh, the first movie that I saw you in, a movie called Four Lions that was written and directed by Chris Morris. and This is essentially a terror cell farce. Um, it's about a domestic terror cell in the UK, that, um, and, and it is a Goofy, silly movie about these
1: guys. <laughs> Ma'shala, Ma'shala, brother. Oh, man. Ma'shala. Ma'shala. F- baby bells. Puffin says, find a target. Well, we've got a target, bro. We're all agreed. What is it? It's the mosque. What? Yeah, bomb the mosque, radicalise the moderates, bring it all on. That's okay, nice. right, no, I like that. I do like that. That's brilliant. Because yeah. let, Let's take out a bunch of Muslims because they're the real enemy. Aren't they better? Once we've done that, why don't we truck bomb a kebab shop and, and fly a jumbo jet into Wadja's mum's head? Why don't we get a pig and staple gun it to our foreheads? But if we bomb the mosque, it'll make all the Muslims rise up. <laughs> my cousin, my cousin Faz died defending a mosque in Bosnia. Did he flipping rise up, bro? Let's <laughs> bomb boots. They sell <laughs> condoms that make you want to bang white girls.
0: I second that bolts <laughs> <laughs> I forgot about that line. <laughs> um, it seems like uh, one of the interesting things about your acting career as it's uh, proceeded has been you mostly managed to avoid uh, the traditional bad guy in an action movie part for a Pakistani actor. Right. Um, Although I'd love to play a born villain. That's on the table, yeah, just so, so everyone knows. Uh, <laughs> and you kind of went from parts where race was essential, but uh, there was a critical view of the role of race and identity and religion. Um, to And you've sort of stepped up the ladder to the point where in The Night Of, of uh, the HBO miniseries in which you recently starred, you played a character whose race was... Certainly part of his identity, it was not the classic sitcom ethnic best friend part where he just happens to be not white. Um, but it was not the essential part of the story. It was not the basis of the story.
1: Mm. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I wrote about this a little bit in my in my essay recently, which is about like, you know, you get these stages of representation sometimes of minorities or groups that aren't that visible. First of all, you get the stereotype, which is like, you know, the shopkeeper, the, the the, um, the terrorist, the cab driver Then you, you, know, then you get the stuff that takes place on ethnicised terrain As you said But it kind of subverts Those dominant narratives maybe So that's like Four Lions Or Road to Guantanamo that I did Which is like Okay we're going to engage With the war on terror You know this film has brown people in it Because it's about Some of those issues around brown people Specific to them but we're going to kind of maybe try and challenge some of the assumptions that, that that group is is burdened with. And then then you get to this point where you're just a guy and you could be playing anyone. Um, now, I kind of think that it, it's great to be kind of um, free of racial stereotypes or free of having to constantly address racial stereotypes, even if you're kind of challenging them in your work. You know, that can feel like a burden. Um, but I, I think that I don't think necessarily that playing, like, someone called Jack or Bob is necessarily up the ladder compared to playing someone called, like, Abdul or Rahim. I think it just feels like that because playing Jack or Bob is so often closed off to people like me. I don't think, like, deracinated portrayals are the holy grail, you know. Ideally, you could have, you know, the sitcom best friend who is called uh, Abdul you know what I mean and it's like and you engage with the fact of his of his cultural identity but it's not it's not about that you know I really love the way like you know uh, Ross and Monica were Jewish in Friends they're like they were they were Jewish that was a thing but it wasn't about that you know um, the way that and, and if you kind of do that enough then you can fully embrace the cultural specificity of the characters without it becoming like a marginal niche kind of movie so the way that Woody Allen has always kind of explored you know um this kind of like this this circle of like you know uh, uh upper class jewish manhattan kind of you know the social circles you do that enough, you just kind of bring it to the center stage of the American story. It just feels like it belongs there at the heart of the American story. Or what Scorsese did with Italian-Americans. You certainly kind of you know, engage with the specificity of that experience. But if you do it well enough and you do it consistently enough and regularly enough, it stops being a thing. And I think that would be pretty cool if we can get to that point.
0: You get to be a spaceman in a Star Wars movie.
1: <laughs> yeah yeah exactly yeah so I, I don't know where that i don't know where that plays are or these uh, all stages
0: i want so the only you know this you're you're going to be in this uh star wars movie that comes out in the uh winter and uh so all i know about this movie uh besides that i'm i'm real glad forrest whitaker isn't finally getting to be in a star wars movie that guy's always been She's the amazing. ultimate spaceman yeah um but uh finally <clears throat> it was just space ghost dog is what I'm hoping for fingers crossed (laughs) Um, but uh, you so there's like one line of your dialogue in the trailer for the Star Wars movie and you're doing a voice that is neither an American accent as you did in The Night Of where in which you played an American guy right Um, nor I think your ordinary speaking voice at least didn't didn't sound like it right So how do you choose, without getting into plot elements of Star Wars that I'm sure you're contractually obligated not to talk about, how do you choose, like, what is the cultural position and, like, talking of a
1: spaceman? Well, I mean, people... (laughs) You know what I mean? I mean, in Rogue One, I think pretty much everyone shows something close to their accent. So it is uh, kind of rooted in a kind of, you know, British RP accent. Um, Wait, what's an RP? RP accent? is Received Pronunciation. That's like is, the Queen's English. That is, yeah. Um, so there's a, there's a touch of that. Um, like, I think maybe it might not be sent. Make a lot of sense to play him as like a Cockney geezer kind of thing. Like, um, but we kind of played it. Hey, initially, close. we should
0: explain your character. Initially, it was Dick Van Dyke was cast in the role. <laughs>
1: <laughs> they needed someone to come in. Yeah. Firstly, just for ADR, right. and then they went. Actually, <laughs> exactly. let's put him in a picture as well. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, I don't know. We kind of just play it roughly close to ourselves, and then the kind of like just the character and uh, the characters and the way they kind of conduct themselves and interact with people. I don't know. It just kind of some that will kind of start guiding you in its own way, and you know, your voice will go up or down, and you'll carry a certain amount of tension or not, and you know, and and so that kind of stuff has its own weird alchemy that 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 kind of just does its own thing. But as a starting point, I think we all kind of went with something close to our own accents. And I think that's also because Rogue One is uh, kind of aspires to be a slightly different kind of Star Wars movie that feels a little bit more gritty, a little bit more real, you know, the way it was shot. Our uh, director of photography, Greg, like, shot films like Zero Dark Thirty. Um, you know, Gareth Edwards, our director, would actually often operate the camera himself, handheld. So there was definitely a sense of trying to make it feel kind of for real. Do you have feelings about Star Wars? Like,
0: was it a a thing for you?
1: It wasn't like a huge, like, I wasn't, I mean, I would say I'm a Star Wars fan, but knowing how big... Yeah, knowing how fanny star wars fans can be right. i f- take that with a pinch of salt like i'm um, not asking you to get in a nerd contest with anybody yeah right, exactly. you never win lose. that you no, never would, win that on the internet i mean I, to be honest like my relationship with it was quite um i mean it was one of the first films i remember seeing i saw it with my brother on vhs um and it was just the images from that were seared onto my mind and they inspired me and me and my brother started like running around the house with a notebook writing down f- like film titles like you know the king jumps forwards or whatever you know after watching past tracks back and just like act out these films um so it kind of like it started my career um as a little kid play fighting around the house um but i didn't really get what was going on i was like young So I didn't even really understand the stories. I was like, oh, Ewoks, cool. You know, when I I went and watched the first new Star
0: Wars movie, or the first new, new Star Wars movie, Star Wars number seven. Yes. And um, the thing that was maybe the most vivid was thinking about when that first trailer came out and John Boyega took off his uh, Stormtrooper helmet and was black. Hmm. And... It's such a vivid illustration of white privilege that for me as a white guy, it never occurred to me that all those guys were white.
1: Right. Yeah, yeah.
0: Until you get that rush of recognition tempered with the idea, oh, right, this is the 21st century I mean, it's whatever century Star Wars is in. Don't don't email me, but like this is the this is a world where there's going to be some represent there's going to be some representation, you know. There's going to be women and people of color and things like that. Yeah. And that was so vivid when set against those feelings of nostalgia.
1: Yeah, you know what I mean. Yeah, I do know what you mean. I think it's very powerful as well, and I think it's really. I think it's the right thing to do On so many levels Whether you want to be cynical And look at it from a business standpoint Or whether you want to be an idealist And look at it as a kind of like You know, the role of art Is to stretch empathy To put yourself in someone else's shoes So let's make sure there are Lots of different kinds of pairs of shoes That people can step into Um yeah, I think it's 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 about time, and it's the right thing to do. And I think a franchise like Star Wars can really help lead the way with something like that, you know. And so I I, I really respect, you know, what Kathy Kennedy and and that whole team at Lucasfilm have decided to to do and to go in that direction. And just going, you know, what I, I want it to be a girl. I want to, it should be a girl at the center of Seven.
0: That's amazing,
1: and that and sends such a strong message. And kids will grow up just seeing. The world and the world of magic and the place where dreams live as a place where people who look all different kinds of ways can also live. You know?
0: I think the fact that it's kids, too, is really significant because I think as a child, uh, you receive those kind of messages about, uh, uh, about dreams and identity hmm. very uh, unconsciously. Yeah. You know, in a way that maybe you don't so much when you're 27. You got a college degree in it. Of
1: course. Yeah. I mean, when we were, when we were growing up, every time there was like a, you know, a, a brown face reading the news or on TV, you know, my mom would call us from the bedroom come downstairs, come downstairs, an Asian person on TV. You know, it was, it was like, a, it was a big deal.
0: Well, Riz, I mean, I'm so grateful that you took all this time to be on Bullseye. It was great to get to talk to you. Thank you so much for having me, man. Riz Ahmed, everyone. As we have been saying, he is nominated for his first Academy Award ever for his performance in Sound of Metal. We'll find out how that goes later on this April. Also, uh, I will say that if you haven't seen Riz in the movie Four Lions, uh, one of his earlier movies, very, very highly recommended. Uh, Probably the best terrorist bombing plot comedy uh, released in the last ever Uh, So check out Four Lions, too. That's the end of another episode of Bullseye. Bullseye is created out of the homes of me and the staff of Maximum Fun in and around greater Los Angeles, California, where there is an endless parade of giant trucks filing down my narrow street, each stopping to be filled with dirt, then continuing on their merry way. The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer is Kevin Ferguson. Jesus Ambrosio and Jordan Cowling are our associate producers. We get help from Casey O'Brien. Production fellows at Maximum Fun are Richard Roby and Valerie Moffett, who both started this week. They are on the line with me right now for the first time. Welcome aboard, Richard and Valerie. Our interstitial music is by Dan Wally, also known as DJW. Our theme song is by The Go Team. Thanks very much to them and their label Memphis Industries for sharing it. The Go Team have a brand new single, by the way. It's called World Remember Me Now. And like The Go Team in general, it totally rules. You can also keep up with the show on Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube. We post all our interviews in those venues, and I think that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off.
1: Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of
0: MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR.